0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello, you are very welcome to the Tonight Show. More severe weather warnings ahead. Parts of North Louth are cleaning up after heavy rain, so water levels rise dramatically swamping a number of locations
2: the water right flowed right through the building and it was at least this high in the building
1: the center of Muri city was also badly hit by floods as water rushed through the main streets all this before storm kieran lands tomorrow evening and also coming up on the program dozens of people are reported killed in a blast at a refugee camp in northern gaza Israel has confirmed that it was one of its attacks.
3: Gaza has become a graveyard for children. It's a living hell for everyone else.
1: Well, more communities have been cleaning up today after another round of intense rain and damaging floods just hours before another storm system bears down on the country. The north-east was worst hit by the heavy downpours overnight and parts of North County Louth have been surveying the damage caused once the rains finally subsided. But with Storm Kieran due to slam into the country tomorrow night, many areas are anxious that this could bring even more flood misery.
2: We got word around three o 'clock that the, the flooding was uh, the uh, water was coming down from the mountain, so um, my son and son in law came over initially, and actually um, my son actually fell down a manhole that had busted up um, and he had to go out to the hospital. but in the meantime, the water right, flowed right through the building and it was at least this high in the building.
1: Well, I'm joined here in studio by climatologist Professor John Sweeney from Maynooth University and by Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather. And on Skype this evening by Sharon McGuigan, the owner of the Carlingford Arms in County Louth. You're all very welcome to the program we We're going to come to you first, Alan, because we know that there were a number of areas hit across the country. Newry. Carlingford, Wexford, very badly uh, damaged parts of Ross Lair, I think in particular, houses affected there. I saw footage of the M1 um, flooding and heavy traffic there today. So what's the situation tonight?
2: So there is heavy rain moving up across the country. Um, It has reached the northeast of the country now. There will be heavy showers overnight tonight, particularly in the west with some very squally showers and some strong winds as well into Galway and Clare early tomorrow morning. So we do have more rainfall, unfortunately. The amounts are not huge, but it is still, you know, a significant amount of rainfall falling at the moment.
1: In terms of the weather that we saw over the last couple of days, where has that come from?
2: So we had a very slow-moving low system that dumped an awful lot of rain into the northeast. So Dundalk weather station recorded 80 millimetres in 36 hours, and another station near the coast actually recorded 70 millimeters in 12 hours on the Moan Mountains. So it was a huge amount of rainfall, and then also we had high tide, obviously as well. But it's just a volume of rainfall. And given that we've seen a year's worth of rainfall already, we've we've already had our year's worth of rainfall. This is falling on top of very wet ground, which unfortunately is resulting in the awful flooding scenes that we're seeing. And and then in Ross Lair, you know, you have water <coughs> lining fields that can't get away and more rainfall there over the weekend as well. So it's, it's really local different events, but it's just the amount of rainfall that we've seen in recent weeks.
1: And we know we're going to uh, speak about Storm Ciaran um, in a couple of minutes time, but there is another weather warning, isn't there, for other areas of the country? prior to storm Ciaran landing.
2: Yes, I think some confusion about Waby when Ciaran is coming. So we have this rain tonight and then we have those very heavy showers in the west. Kerry um, has very heavy showers and that's going to move up into Galway, into Clare in a little bit further and very strong winds into Galway and Clare, which has a wind warning. That's tomorrow morning and that's well before Ciaran even starts to come towards
1: us. Okay, I just want to go to uh, Sharon McGuigan because I know, uh, Sharon, that your uh, business was affected. Uh, Tell me what happened, Sharon.
4: Well, about half 10, um, 11 o'clock last night, um, we just noticed that it was the rain was getting heavier. Um, the tide was coming in. There was a high tide. The wind was up. The mountain was coming down. The water had nowhere to go. A um, local councillor advised us to get extra sandbags. We did it, but it didn't do no good to us. We still were all flooded this morning.
1: And you're located, Sharon, I suppose, between Carlingford Lock and the more Mountains there, the Cooley Peninsula. The threat, though, That's was really right. coming more from the mountains last night, wasn't it, rather than the lock itself?
4: Well, it was both because the tide was in. We had a high tide and the mountain just burst. The water had nowhere to go. So between water and sewerage and... That's what we had in our pub today.
1: So bring me through the extent of the damage. So your line is just breaking up there a little bit. Bring me through the extent of the damage to the Carlingford Arms, to your pub uh, last night and today, uh, when you finally got in to see what had been done.
4: Well, we were there last night till 10 past five this morning. Um, it came in through the kitchen door, so our fridges. Um, it came in through the bar door, so our carpet in the bar, our restaurants destroyed, um, the bottle coolers. We had to switch off um, our electric for security reasons uh, last night. So all our fridges has been off. The food is all wasted. We're just in a bad situation at the moment. How much would you reckon you've lost? Can you put a figure on it? Well, we can't really put a figure on it, yes, at the moment, because we don't know how much more damage is going to be done between tonight and tomorrow.
1: So that's the real, I suppose, fear for businesses in Carlingford is that there is further heavy rain anticipated. Exactly. In terms of your preparedness right, yes. for this, Sharon, do you feel you were given adequate support and adequate warnings about what was going to happen?
4: Well, we did get the support from our local councillor, as I said, Anton Waters last night. He, was, he calmed the situation down. He got us, he'd done us as much help. Um, he came round to us today. He is pushing to get us help from the government and um, it's just one of those situations. But we did get, only for Antoine, like he did calm the situation down with everybody last night.
1: Do you, Does your business have insurance, Sharon, given your location?
4: No, we're not covered for floods. This happened 27 years ago and um, we're not covered for floods. And the, I, there's a lot of premises, it's the same in County, but not covered.
1: So you'll be hoping then for a government response similar to what we saw in other areas of the country last week?
4: Yes, hopefully we will get something because we definitely need help.
1: All right. Thank you for speaking to us, Sharon. I hope your business isn't affected this evening. Earlier, I did speak to another businessman, Paul McCartan, who's in Newry in County Down, about the impact of the severe flooding there on his business
5: yeah nothing to be honest, nothing much has changed during the course of the day. We're sort of hoping when it went up this morning that you know the levels would have dropped and unfortunately it hasn't happened and um you know myself like a lot of other business owners especially in in the sugar island area where where, uh, where our business is um we're really badly hit at the minute and it's it's uh, yeah it's it's devastating.
1: So tell me how this event unfolded, Paul, and how your business was affected.
5: Well, I got a call last night um, from one of the neighbouring shops, and, and they just said maybe it might be wise just to come up and and check things out. So uh, yeah, I went up. I went up last night about eleven o'clock, and at that stage, nothing. You know, there was nothing major on Sugar Island. There was. Flooding down one side of it, which was affecting, obviously, businesses in that side. But where my business was, it hadn't really affected it at that stage. But um, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, there's been, you know, severe flooding. Um, funny that the main canal, which is right beside me, hasn't flooded. But it was all the other rivers and the canal at the back um, just led to uh Major flooding coming up uh, one of the streets, and then basically onto the Sugar Island, where where all the businesses are, my my businesses, myself, and uh, created this uh, massive massive problem that we have now.
1: We're just looking there at footage from inside your shop taken earlier today. I can see the extent of the damage. Bring me through what has been damaged in terms of stock, in terms of fittings, in terms of the unit itself, Paul.
5: Well, you know, you can see from the photographs, um, they don't paint a good picture. We're uh, fully stocked for coming up to what, our, what is our busy, busy period, which is the lead up to Christmas. And, um, you know, this is an absolute disaster for us. Um, you know, the stock was... I had to get into the building first off, and that was the the a major issue. Um, and lucky enough, had good friends with me that that came in as well, and we got the stock that wasn't badly affected upstairs, uh, out of the way. Uh, but obviously, there's, there's a lot of a lot of stock that is severely damaged and uh, wet, and uh, you know that's that's the issue that I have. And then plus running into the the weekend of which I I wasn't able to get out today. I, I've Two weddings coming off, and uh, I have two two brides and two grooms that need their need their wedding suits out. So I, I've got to get back in tomorrow and 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 try and get their suits out for them.
1: And I know you had recently spent some money on the business, hadn't you? Refurbishing it and improving it, and hoping that it'd be looking its best coming up to that, as you say, very busy Christmas period.
5: Yeah, we had made a major investment three three weeks ago, and and. Uh, Refloored the whole uh, shop uh, just in the lead up to Christmas. Want the place looking looking well of good brands and and uh, you know just to enhance the customer experience when they do come into the shop. So uh, this is this is a real nightmare, and the fact that obviously there's no insurance cover because um, the insurance com- co- companies will not um, give flood flood damage. uh won't cover that in the Newry area, so um, we're really we're really out on our own at the minute.
1: Can you put a, a figure on this, Paul?
5: To be honest, I was in for two, three hours earlier today getting it cleared. I, I honestly couldn't tell you because there was parts of the shop that were just really in, in real bad nick. Until, until I get back in and see what's been damaged, what hasn't been damaged... Um, I really can't, but it's it's thousands upon thousands for me. And to get the shop back, I, I won't be able to get the shop open this side of Christmas. Uh, the, you know, because it's it's severely flooded. There is going to be, um, you know, obviously it needs to dry out. I've got to get pump water all pumped out, and uh, obviously the fixtures are just ruined as well. So to get all that done and try and get it open for Christmas isn't going to happen for me. So. Yeah, it's a very difficult period and, uh, yeah, not something I expected 48 hours ago.
1: Well, here in studio, as I said, was Alan O'Reilly and John Sweeney, climatologist with the New University. Thank you for joining us. Professor, are we getting more flooding events in Ireland or are we just becoming more and more aware of them?
6: We're getting more extreme events. Uh, I think during the, the last decade, most of our extreme weather events were windstorm events. But go back to the first decade of this century, and we were really heavily burdened by flood events. What we're seeing now, I think, is that the extreme events are becoming worse and they're becoming more frequent. Um, and that's largely of our own making in the sense that, you know, we know that the ocean around us has warmed up. We know that the storms that we're talking about tonight have formed and developed over an Atlantic that's maybe a degree or two warmer than usual and therefore they can carry a lot more water vapour and when they release it, we get the huge intensity increases that we've been seeing over the past few storms in particular. And now, do we each...
1: understand why that has happened, why we went from these flooding events at the turn of the century to these major wind events, which many of us will remember, those storms, stormophilia comes to mind to know these flooding events again? Well,
6: it's a mix of, of cycles as well and windstorm events. Uh, we know that Ireland is 7% wetter now than it was 30 years ago. Uh, and that corresponds very closely to the warming of about 0.7, 0.8 degrees that we've had over that period. Uh, but we do get cycles in, in the, the circulation, which also complicate things as well. But it's quite clear that we're now on a trend of increasing extremes of both kinds, both temperature temperature and uh, rainfall. And uh, as an island in the, in the middle of the Atlantic, we're quite prone, especially so- to the latter.
1: We are very vulnerable, given our position here. We
6: are. Um, we, we are dependent on the westerly winds. And if you think of Storm Babette, it came up from nearly the Portugal area through the Bay of Biscay, through very warm water. So it was supercharged with water vapour by the time it arrived in Ireland. Storm Chiron is coming a bit more from the west, but it has formed over very warm water to the east of Newfoundland. Uh, and, of course, there are complications as well due to the jet stream and the jet stream At the moment, there's a huge temperature difference in North America between North and South. And this is generating a very, very vigorous jet stream in the Atlantic, which has, if you like, helped the storm Chiron to develop even more quickly. But of course, it's going to deepen, as we know, very rapidly over the next 48 hours and reach perhaps a a direct hit on places in the south of England. And that's really where the the, the brunt of that storm will be felt. But it is, like all extreme events, probably has a fingerprint of climate change causes uh, associated with it.
1: Um, in terms of how Storm Kiron is going to impact this country, what's it going to be like, Alan? So, you know, we're lucky that Storm Ciaran, as John said, is
2: really going to pass to the south of us, so the west of, of coast of France and south of England is going to get the worst of the wind and a lot of the rain. But We do have a concern with rainfall on the north of the centre of the storm which could bring some more heavy rainfall into southern coastal counties, especially in the southeast and the east, really through tomorrow night and early into Thursday morning. The rainfall amounts, depending on the exact track, could range from 15 to 50 millimetres of rain. And given what we've seen, the impacts in Rosslair and Cork, et cetera, more heavy rainfall there could obviously cause more local flooding. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly the amount of rain we're going to see, but there is a risk of more heavy rainfall.
1: And I suppose the difficulty now is that the ground is completely saturated and a lot of the rivers are very high at this point.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the land is like a bucket full of water and everything you pour now is just flowing out of the bucket. We've had our year average rainfall. Looking at Johnstown Castle in Wexford, it's had 40% of its annual rainfall in the last two months, just in September and October, 400 millimetres of rain. Um, And we've two more months, obviously, of the year to come. So if we continue to see this wet weather continuing into the next two months, Unfortunately, I, I expect you're going to see a lot more of those type of images that you were showing earlier on your screens.
1: You're nodding your head in agreement yeah, there, John. Yeah, I'm Tom. nodding
6: because, I mean, there, there's an additional hazard from that saturated ground. And that is, of course, that the ground is, is very weak. And therefore, if we get a good windstorm, trees will start to topple more readily. They're in full leaf at the moment still. We have problems probably with some of the drains being blocked by leaves at the moment also. So there is, if you like, the, the makings of, of problems down the road for this particular, particular storm.
1: Um, you said a little earlier there, John, that we are vulnerable in Ireland because of our location. Yes. But are we also vulnerable because of where we have developed our towns and our cities and the planning around some of our houses in this country. Is that also leaving us vulnerable at this
6: point? Most of our big cities are on the coast. 40% of our population lives within five kilometres of the coast. Um, We know also that many of our big cities have developed towards the sea on reclaimed land. If you think of Dublin City... Wood Quay is a long way from Sandymount uh, and we've, we've grown out onto vulnerable areas in many cities as well. So it means that we have to be more cautious, I think in terms of where we put settlements in the future We can't really make the mistakes of the past in terms of planning to build on floodplains or vulnerable areas. Even though we are still doing that, aren't we? Even though we are still doing that, but I think the the lesson that we've had from Newry and Carlingford is that for the future, places that probably haven't had a history of flooding are going to be vulnerable in the years ahead
1: as well. So the answer then for those areas, let's say, that are prone to flooding or maybe prone to flooding. Is it as simple as flood defences? And I'm not saying they're anything but uh, that they are simple. We all know the the complexity and the cost and the difficulties towards getting uh, flood defences built in this country. But is that what we're looking at?
6: We are looking at huge taxpayer expenditure. We know that flood defences can work if they're done properly. We've seen towns like Clonmel, for example, avoid the worst of recent storms and recent flooding But it will require speeding up in terms of the the process of actually getting those defences up and running. Uh, It will require a lot more money than perhaps we've allocated even at the moment. And it will require drive from the political system, in particular, and leadership from the political system to tackle what will be Ireland's major impact from global warming.
1: And have you seen that to date or have we been slow to act?
6: I think we've been slow um, and, and I don't think it's uh, as many people would argue. It's not due to the, the planning process cr- slowing things down. It's due to bureaucratic uh, processes slowing things down primarily. And I think that's the lesson that we we really should get from the events. Like this, that we need to move more quickly, we need to spend the money, and we need to get those kinds of defences that we know work around some of our key settlements.
1: But we did hear today uh, the report from the National Coastal Change Management Strategy. They spoke about the need for managed retreat and because of flooding and because of coastal erosion. Are there going to be many areas in Ireland do you think that that is going to be necessary? Is that a very difficult conversation that we need to have?
6: It's a very difficult conversation because everybody wants to protect their own little piece of land uh, and the political pressure to do that will be immense. But I think we have to recognize that there will be instances where it doesn't make uh, sense from an economic point of view to protect areas of agricultural land, to protect areas of recreational land like golf courses from what will inevitably be uh, the consequences of sea level rise and increased coastal erosion. And I think, you know, we, we, we have to look at what's happening elsewhere. Um, in Wales, for example, Gwynedd County Council have decided that Fairborne, a little village, um, will be abandoned in terms of its flood protection measures by 2050, and that the population will therefore have to move elsewhere. Incredibly that's quite stark. Ras- that's quite drastic. And I think I think we have to come to terms with the cost of inaction on climate change.
1: Uh, as you said, uh, Alan, in some ways we are lucky that the peak, almost the epicentre of Storm Curran isn't going to be Ireland, it's going to be England and it's going to be France, in particular some of those Channel Islands. How are they going to be impacted? It's, it's pretty severe, isn't it? It
2: absolutely is. Um, you're looking at possibly in excess of 170 kilometres an hour off the west coast of France. 10-metre sea waves are are forecast, and even into parts of Cornwall and and into Jersey, you know, there is gusts that could be very, very damaging. So it really is, if you're planning to travel to the south of England, uh, I would be keeping up to date with what you, because there is, amber alerts have been issued by the UK Met Office, um, and I expect more weather warnings will be issued there. So we are lucky that maybe we've dodged this one, but whether we'll keep getting lucky, and maybe the next one might be more heading our, our way, unfortunately.
1: All right, unfortunately we've leave it there now for for now. But thank you to Alan O'Reilly from Carlo or rather where you can get all of those updates that you talk about, and John Sweeney from Meneath University. Thank you both for joining us next, the very latest, on the war in the Middle East, after Israel admits bombing (coughs) a refugee camp. Do stay with us. You're welcome back. Well, Israel has confirmed that it's responsible for a blast at a refugee camp in northern Gaza that has claimed dozens of lives. The Hamas-run health ministry says at least 50 people were killed. The IDF says the blast was caused by a strike targeting a senior Hamas leader in the area. Well, let's get the very latest. I'm joined live from Tel Aviv in Israel by CNN correspondent Rafael, Romo. Uh, Rafael, reports of large number of casualties at this refugee camp, as they're describing it, uh, Jabalia in northern Gaza. What more can you tell us about what has happened and about the number of people who have died in this attack?
7: Hi Kira. Well local officials say that hundreds of people could have died there. We're trying to confirm that information ourselves. But what we know is that the Jubalia refugee camp is the largest of the Gaza Strips, eight refugee camps according to the UN. More than hundred thousand people live there. It is Burroughs furniture is built for the way you live. PlushCare.com located north of Gaza City and it is the nearest camp to the Erez border crossing which before the war linked Gaza to Israel. The Ministry of the Interior in Gaza reported that 20 HOMES WERE COMPLETELY DESTROYED IN THE ISRAELI BOMBING THAT TARGETED A RESIDENTIAL NEIGHBORHOOD IN THE JUBALIA CAMP, THE DIRECTOR OF Gaza's INDONESIAN HOSPITAL, A NEARBY MEDICAL INSTITUTION, TOLD CNN THAT HUNDREDS OF PEOPLE DIED AND THAT MANY OTHERS uh, WERE INJURED AND ARRIVED AT HIS HOSPITAL. HE ALSO SAID THAT MANY MORE ARE STILL under the rubble. The Israel Defense Forces is taking ownership for the attack. Kira, an Israeli military spokesperson, told CNN that an Israel Defense Forces attack caused a massive blast at Jubalia refugee camp as they were targeting a very senior Hamas commander in that area. Back to you.
1: You say this is one of the biggest, or it is the biggest, of eight refugee camps. But it's not quite perhaps a refugee camp, as many people in the West would understand a refugee camp to look at. This is one of the most densely populated places I understand in the earth. Can you describe it for me?
7: Yeah, that's a very good point, Kira. It's not only the fact that it is uh, the the largest, according to the UN, it's also the fact that since the war, many of the people who lived in, in the north of Gaza had fled their homes and many ended up there. So it was densely populated even before the war, after the war is even worse. And what we have seen, not only there, but in other places, is that people are going to two kinds of different places. They're going to... Hospitals, or they're going to refugee camps, which is uh, the 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 case in in this particular instance. So, uh, the fact that you have such dense population there complicates the situation even further when you have an airstrike. Kira.
1: Anthony Blinken was speaking today he spoke about the need for swift and sustained humanitarian relief he said ultimately Hamas would benefit um, if this didn't happen because they would be seen as the saviors of the desperation that they themselves created is there any sense at all that Israel is aware or indeed influenced by some of the international criticism of what they have done Yeah,
7: they are very much. They are. And, and part of what they have done is uh, secure, at least in, in this instance, uh, the, the passage of humanitarian aid through the Rafa border crossing in Egypt. And uh, as a result of uh, meetings between not only uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, but also you may remember that uh, President Biden was here. Um, the United States has a... a Contributed with a $100 million uh, fund that is to be used for humanitarian aid in Gaza. So there are efforts from the international community, the United States, Israel, and, and others, including Egypt, Qatar, the UAE, to try to help those civilians. The problem is that neither side, um, Hamas or Israel, um, at this point, they do not appear to be willing to to uh, agree to a ceasefire, and that's what we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks.
1: All right, uh, Rafael Romo in Tel Aviv, thank you for bringing us that update. Well, earlier I spoke to Kim Zengupta, the defence editor with the Independent newspaper, who is in Jerusalem. He gave me his thoughts on Israel's war strategy.
8: Well, they're taking it slowly. Uh, there hasn't been a, a mad rush for Gaza City, which is where the Hamas leadership is and and the weaponry uh, located and the command and control is located. What they have been doing is they're basically trying to cut up Gaza, which is quite a small piece of land, as you know, bit by bit. They're also trying to encircle Gaza City, strangle Gaza City, by cutting off uh, the routes east, south, west and north. They haven't quite succeeded in doing that and there have been quite um, uh, prolonged battles on the way. But that appears to be the case, and they also appear, at the moment at least, not to want to commit large-scale forces into Gaza City itself.
1: In terms of their stated strategy, they have said that they want to eradicate Hamas. In terms of what we've seen over the last two weeks, how successful have they been in that aim?
8: Well I mean if one knows uh, what they mean by eradicating uh, Hamas I suppose we can we can gauge I mean you know that they have been killing Hamas commanders uh they have been killing Hamas fighters uh, but there are always more as we know and and I suppose you know the obvious question which people have been asking is that how do you actually kill off an ideology how do you kill off an idea mm-hmm. and Hamas isn't just people you know it's a uh, it's a movement and they've it, got their own uh, Islamist tenets. They've got their own, own uh, uh, philosophy. So, you know, educating Hamas is, is a broad term, uh, which, you know, one has to try and decipher. And at the moment, what they are doing is, you know, they are uh, dismantling slowly the Hamas infrastructure, although they've got a, you know, a major, major task when they get to Gaza City, mm-hmm. uh, because of course, you know, they'll have, they'll have to deal with these Long and, and 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 very complex tunnel systems. So at the moment, you know, they uh, they're killing the Hamas fighters. They're destroying some the Hamas defensive emplacements. They are uh, flushing out ambush points. They've lost um, a couple of soldiers, the Israelis, and they've lost some armored cars. It, it seems. But the actual final battle, uh, which is going to be uh, very difficult and and very bloody, will probably take place in a. Subterranean arena, the, the the miles, hundreds of miles of, of tunnels below Gaza City, with the added uh, problem, of course, that um, that now we are told more than two hundred forty hostages who are in Gaza uh, may well be in those tunnels, and they, of course, will become effectively human shields uh, who may get caught in the crossfire unless they are uh, either rescued or or freed uh, through negotiations. So it's a a very difficult uh, task for the Israelis. It's not something they have ever done before. I was in the the, the, the last really brutal Gaza war in 2014. I was there for six weeks uh, in Gaza City, and the Israelis came to a certain point. Uh, In fact, the point they have reached now coming from the north, and then they withdrew after um, taking a lot of of casualties. They're not going to withdraw now. They're going to go forward. But, um, you know, it it will be at some cost.
1: If we are to assume that Hamas would have known that Israel would respond with this degree of force, given what was carried out on October 7th, how prepared do you think they are for Israel's response?
8: Well, we are told um, that, you know, they have been preparing for months, if not years, you know, some Israeli um, analysts, intelligence uh, uh, experts say that they've been preparing for possibly uh, as long as two years. And, and if that is the case, you know, they are very well prepared. Uh, they'll be fighting in their own terrain, which is the the urban, uh, what's left of the urban landscape of uh, Gaza City. They'll be fighting in these underground passageways. Um, and, you know, in those areas, the... Defenders have the advantage. Uh, you know, fighting in these tunnels will be in close combat. You know, one can't even use a, a full-length assault rifle, for example. Uh, you know, the, the Israelis will have to somehow uh, get oxygen. You know, there'll be visibility is going to be uh, a very, very limited because even the modern night uh, vision goggles wouldn't work there because of the lack of ambient. Uh, ambient uh, 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 light. So, you know, there, there are all these um, challenges they face. But, you know, they, they, they say they are aware of those. They say they have been uh, preparing for these um, difficult tasks. Uh, and, you know, we have to wait and see what happens when they actually get there.
1: Well, I'm joined here in studio by Jane-Anne McKenna from Docus, the umbrella group for NGOs. For more on the humanitarian aid situation in Gaza, you're very welcome to the programme. We see those awful scenes this evening of that refugee camp in Jabalia, the biggest of eight refugee camps mm. um, in Gaza. Hundreds of thousands of people living in there, clearly in desperate need now of aid.
0: How difficult is it to get aid to them at this point? It's an extremely challenging situation on the ground. There's a a number of Irish aid agencies who have been working consistently in in Gaza, in Israel, in the West Bank over the last number of years, over the last number of decades. Um, And they are working very much with staff and partners on the ground in Gaza today. But the reality for many of those people, those staff and partners is that it's extremely difficult to work. They themselves have found themselves, their homes have been destroyed. They've been forced to move themselves with their families uh, to the south of Gaza, but also the communication situation is very challenging. So it's very difficult to actually be able to communicate, to coordinate um, and to work and respond to what the needs are. And this comes at a time when we're seeing that the, the level of aid that's actually getting into Gaza is not at all, at the frac- is a fraction really of what is really needed. I think yesterday it was 26 uh, trucks that were allowed in, and that really is not sufficient in any shape or form in terms of what the humanitarian needs are. Um, so the situation on the ground is very challenging, uh, but there are local staff local partners of many of the Irish aid agencies who are there and are persevering and continuing to try and support their local communities and respond to the needs. So many of the
1: aid workers then working in Gaza at the minute would be local Palestinians who are connected to aid agencies or have relationship with the Irish aid agencies.
0: Exactly, yeah. And they would be um, still operating today in terms of, you know, providing small-scale cash um, donations or indeed food supplies or looking at health clinics, uh, mobile clinics in the region. Um, But really... And they're essentially providing some level of a a, a lifeline for a number of people who are there. Because what we're seeing is that the level of aid is not sufficient in terms of the level of humanitarian access is not there. Um, And a number of Irish aid agencies are stand ready to scale up their response in the region. Uh, but in order to do so, there needs to be humanitarian access and that needs to be safe, it needs to be consistent and it needs to be at scale. Um, and
1: that's So the only... aid agencies are not in a position now to send in their own workers, given what we see happening on the ground in Gaza?
0: No, they're only in a, really in the position now to support... Um, Palestinians who are on the ground, partners of theirs local um, local workers who are there who have been on the ground, who are responding in the hospitals, in the camps today as best they can and providing that lifeline to their communities so, and it's really imperative and critical that we continue to support those local responders because they are really the lifeline to many people who are trapped in Gaza today.
1: You mentioned the number of aid trucks that got in yesterday, I think it was 39 aid trucks uh, that managed to get across the RAFA crossing today. What is in those aid trucks and how far do they go in terms of trying to address some of the humanitarian needs that is there?
0: Well, we know there's a number of humanitarian items in there. You know, you would, it'd be critical that there is food uh, uh, as a priority also kind of shelter items. Um, But what we're really seeing a lack of is fuel. And this is what really is needed to continue to run the hospitals, to continue to provide urgent life-saving care to people who are there. And it is clear that, you know, it is before this conflict happened, there was 300 to 500 trucks crossing the border. And now we're talking about, in the tens, we're talking about 39. It is really not at the scale that is needed. And that is really what... All the Irish NGOs are calling for, not only for a ceasefire, but for unimpeded humanitarian access to be able to reach those who are most vulnerable and in desperate need of assistance today.
1: We hear that awful phrase from UNICEF today, that Gaza has become a graveyard for children. A very, very difficult thing to hear. Just what are conditions like? For people there, what is day-to-day life like for ordinary Gazan citizens?
0: Well, the level of destruction that we've seen is, I suppose, it's unfathomable. The level of human toll that we have seen is unfathomable. And what we're seeing is that, you know, the devastating every day. When we look at the news, we're seeing more and more people and civilians who are being caught up in this conflict. Um, And unfortunately, the impact of this conflict is going to stay with them for years to come. This human toll, this level of destruction. Um, is going to have a devastating impact on the communities that are there. And it's imperative that we can get aid in, that local aid workers can continue to work and that international aid agencies can work on the ground. And
1: I know if anybody wants to support those aid agencies, they can look on the DOCA's uh, website and you'll give them the links. Thank you very much for coming in to us this evening. Next, we're going to get an update on the Corbett manslaughter case in the United States. We'll bring you the very latest. Do stay with us. Well, the pre-sentencing hearing in the Jason Corbett manslaughter case has been hearing from defence lawyers in the United States. I'm joined by Irish Times US correspondent Martin Wald. Martin, thank you for joining us on the programme. This is a pre-sentencing hearing that Irish people won't be familiar with. It's a very different process. There's quite a number of witnesses that the court are going to hear from. Who did they hear from today? And uh, what was the response to the evidence that was given?
9: Well, good evening. What, what has happened basically is, is that the, we've only started this process. This will run maybe until the middle of next week. And we started uh, at the end of yesterday and today to hear from police witnesses. These were uh, members of the police force who attended the original scene of the the the, the murder of or the killing of Jason Corbett in, o- in August of 2015. And as part of that evidence, what was read into the record were interviews that were given to police at the time by uh, both Tom Martins who is the father of Molly Martins Corbett who on Monday pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter of Jason Corbett and his wife Sharon Martins and they gave evidence as I say it's in 2015 one was a written statement the other was a video interview and they were played and read to the court today and basically the, the real upshot of that with the is how the portrayal of what the family are, are seeking or, or what the Martins are seeking to do And basically they have sought to, or they did seek to suggest to the police that there had been, that their daughter and Jason Corbett had an abusive relationship. Tom Martins in a video evidence and video interview given to police uh, just hours after the death of Jason Corbett described the relationship as cruel, controlling and abusive. He said he didn't, he had no knowledge as to whether it was physically abusive, but he described him as, he said his daughter, though, didn't tell him everything. She talked to his wife more than, than him, but that, it, she, he, that he he portrayed Jason Corbett as being controlling. He maintained that he, he checked his wife's phones and computers, and that when they played golf, he contacted his wife after every hole. So the, the, the written interview, the written statement that was given by Sharon Martins, who's Tom Martin's wife and Molly Martin's mother, suggested that she suspected that the relationship was physically violent and they she she maintained that Jason Corbett's children from his first marriage who lived in the house with Molly Martins and Jason had told her about um, their father pushing Molly Martins up against a wall so they she said that she had agreed a, a agreed an arrangement with the children whereby they had a code word that if thing got out of control in the house that they could phone her they could use this code word and she would call the police and this was set out in her evidence in her statement now the issue was that the cross the prosecution maintained that her evidence was not really or in the statement was not credible and they maintained that because they could not cross examine her because of the rules in relation to her husband had been charged in relation to a murder and she could not be compelled to give evidence in against her husband so therefore the prosecution could not uh, cross examine her she maintained sharon martin maintained in her evidence to the police That she had been asleep downstairs, she'd woken up, she'd heard a commotion upstairs, she'd heard noises, she'd heard her daughter screaming. Her husband had um, left their bedroom. He had picked up a baseball bat and went upstairs saying he was either going to calm things down or he was going to call the police. Her evidence was that, Sharon Martin's evidence was, was that things seemed to have calmed down and that she went back asleep. The prosecution contended that that wasn't really credible. That if you're if you're fearful that your daughter is in an abusive relationship, you hear her screaming, you hear thudding sounds upstairs, your husband leaves your bedroom with a baseball bat. How credible is it that you would just go back to sleep? And that was the so that was the her that that was the 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 argument in relation to that. The prosecution also maintained they they described Molly Martin's Corbett. They said that she had a a a, a relationship that was she struggled. With, um, with with telling the truth, essentially, and that they, so that they, they, that it, it's, it's, it, we had a slightly dichotomy view of the situation today, whereby the, the, the Martins family were seeking to portray that they acted in self-defense, that, that her daughter was in an abusive relationship, yet the prosecution maintained that they really believed that their, that Molly Martins and what she was saying had difficulty in telling the truth. So, That's the evidence that's to say where it went today in relation to evidence that was given originally back and recorded originally back in 2015 and now uh, being played to the to the judge who will decide in the in the next uh, over the next uh, few days in the next week, as to the sentence that will apply, because obviously they, they both parties, both uh, Tom Martins and Molly Martins, Corbett, have effectively pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter.
1: All right, uh, Martin Wall, as you say, that is likely to go on well into next week, and I'm sure the court is going to hear from many more uh, witnesses. We will bring you those updates when we get them. Martin Wall from the Irish Times, thank you for speaking to us uh, this evening. I'm joined now in studio by John Mark McCaffrey from Threshold, who is calling for a NCT-style inspections on rented accommodation with poor standards. You're very welcome to the programme, John Mark. Why why do we need these NCT-style inspections on rental properties and what would they look like?
3: Well, people who are in private rented housing are more likely to be in, in housing that's damp, mouldy, uh, that's cold. Um... Um, and that has uh, physical uh, repair issues, Um, um, they're more likely to experience all of those issues than the general public in, say, owner-occupied housing or indeed in social housing. And when you say more
1: likely, how common is that?
3: Well, if you look at kind of housing stock and I I guess also the issues that we're coming up against, um, it it is very much the, uh, the experience of those families and those individuals that um, they will tend to be in housing um, that, you know, that is um, suffering from um, higher levels of kind of failure rates in terms of inspections. Um, and also um, the, the people who are renting don't have the, the dominion over the house to, to, to change things in the house in the same way that if you're an owner occupier, you can you can go in, you can make material changes. Even so, though
1: they have to adhere to certain legal standards in terms of the condition of the house, don't they?
3: Absolutely, yeah. and I guess the the issue here is that there are standards in accommodation, and that um, in the private rented sector, those standards need to be or should be ad- adhered to in terms of you know um, the, the structural repair of the house. Um, toilet and shower facilities being of you know an adequate standard, standards, um, heating facilities, ventilation facilities. So there there is there are things in law which um, should protect people from you know uh, the kind of uh, poor standards that you can see or you're more likely to see in the private rented sector.
1: Um, we did invite the Irish Property Owners Association onto the programme, but they couldn't make somebody available to us, but they did send us a statement to say they absolutely refute the idea that the system is required. It's an extra layer of bureaucracy. It'll drive more landlords out of the market. And then the inspections on properties, 83% of properties inspected are fully compliant with best practice. They're saying there's no evidence that's needed.
3: Yeah, I guess the evidence is the contrary to that in relation to the inspections that the local authorities run. Now, their system is far from ideal but certainly every year there's a, a significant quotient of, uh, uh, of homes that, that essentially fail uh, when they're inspected by the local authorities. Why this matters is because you know people who are in homes that, that fail, they're more likely to be at risk of um, both physical and mental health problems because of, say, damp, cold housing. And we are really mindful there is a lack of supply out there. Um, and so anything that you do uh, needs to balance supply with the needs of, uh, of people in their homes. All
1: right, drama McAfee, thank you for coming in. for that's it from us. Goodbye. See you tomorrow.